This episode is brought to you by Maui Nui Venison, a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest meat on the planet directly to your door. I have strived over the years to cultivate a deeper connection with the food that fuels myself and my family, balancing nutritional value and ethics that align with our values. This process has led me to harmonize with nature as much as possible. Maui Nui Venison brings this process to fruition. Not only does this company provide the most nutrient-dense meat available, this is the only stress-free, 100% wild-harvested red meat on the market, an operation that is truly one of its kind, actively managing Maui's invasive axis deer populations, helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii. Maui Nui seeks to restore balance, not eradicate or farm these animals. Managing populations means only a limited number of memberships are available. Get yours while you can. Go to MauiNuiVenison.com slash mindful to get 20% off your first order. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. I recently had Jay Feldman on the podcast from the Energy Balance Podcast. And today I speak with his colleague and co-host, Mike Fave. Together, Jay and Mike have put together a tremendous resource of education around the bioenergetic model of health. I have been on a journey, ups and downs and twists and turns, trying to figure out what is the optimal diet for me to thrive and be at my best. And through that journey, I've tried all kinds of different fads and diet of the day, whatever. And I know I'm not alone with that. I know many people out there struggle to try to find what really fits. Sometimes when you try a diet, it uh, works well for a while and, it, and then it doesn't. And the bioenergetic model presents uh, a different scaffolding to, to work from when you're viewing uh, how to make decisions around food when your health is top priority. Now, what's nice about this model is it's not a eat this, don't eat that. It's try to understand the underlying principles uh, which then could guide your decisions. And those principles are really linked to the ideas of energy. Having the demand of energy that we have, meaning the things that are required, what it's required to do all the things we want to do in life and have to do, have that demand be met by the supply of energy that our body is capable of making. And there's a lot of variables that go into that. It's not just what you eat, but how well do we convert that food that we eat into energy and what 
potential insults could there be that we're exposed to that could inhibit that process and gaining understanding about it and then using that to kind of piece together our decisions and then learning from that because it might not be a perfectly smooth linear process now i've gained a lot of benefits personally from the education i've got from mike and jay and i wanted to have mike on today to not just give his kind of perspective of this idea but also get some personal help because i'm a couple months into this process and a lot of benefits but also some things that I'm not really sure how to navigate. So I was hoping to get some expert advice and offer an opportunity for the listeners to hear, you know, how Mike would think about this and approach these types of issues and see what type of adjustments are worth trying uh, going forward. So that's what the episode is essentially about. It's a little longer than usual because it's basically a regular episode, but then I kind of use Mike for my, um, selfish reasons to get some personal advice and that takes a little time at the end so uh, i hope you enjoy it and uh thanks again for tuning in all right mike fave thanks for joining me on the mindful movement podcast awesome pleasure to be here les thanks for having me so for the listeners recently we had your colleague uh, and podcast partner jay feldman on kind of going over the bioenergetic model of health. So for the listeners, if you didn't listen to that, um, it might be useful to listen to that first, but I think we're gonna we're gonna recap so that it's not necessary, but they definitely go hand in hand, these two episodes, or interviews. Um, I personally have found over the years as I navigate my health and healing journey, a lot of value in hearing other people's healing journeys and learning what works and what doesn't, and then tinkering. So I was hoping that in this episode, um, because you coach folks on, you know, how to apply these strategies and use this model um, as like a a scaffolding, I guess, that you could uh, maybe shed some insights on what I'm experiencing, some ups and downs, and maybe help others that are interested Uh, figure out how to navigate these things, because I don't think I'm alone. And I know that you've gone through something similar that you could touch on, but trying to figure out the food puzzle of health has been really challenging over the years. Um, In 2017, I had um, a nutritionist recommend keto. I was, I guess, like paleo before that. And everything went uh, downhill from there, dietarily, it seemed. I went from keto to uh, low carb to even lower carb to basically zero carb, (laughs) then low carb, then more carb and more carb. And now I got introduced to Ray Pete a little bit and then found the Energy Balance podcast with you and Jay. And it's been such a tremendous wealth of education and information for me. So one, I want to thank you for your role in that. No problem. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful. As I mentioned on Jay's podcast, you guys do a tremendous job educating um, and providing information for folks to kind of work through it in a very methodical way. So I was hoping we could start off by reviewing a little bit of what some of the more like foundational principles are that you rely on 
okay. for this uh, bioenergetic model, especially for the listeners that haven't listened to the recent uh, podcast with Jay? Yeah, awesome. So again, I want to reiterate, I'm happy to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Now, as far as the basic ideas underlying the bioenergetic point of view, it's, I just want to frame it a little bit first for the audience. It's not as it's not similar and similar in the sense to keto or carnivore or paleo or even veganism or plant-based because the, the the general idea here isn't to pick one food group and then determine that that food group in and of itself is a problem and then kind of like just like knock it out or to give people necessarily a manifesto of this is the cure this diet the the bioenergetic perspective is one of taking principles coming out of research and science and then applying them to individual context and then working out some type of lifestyle dietary perspective from there. So it's a little bit different. It's not like there's this like set of rules. It's more like there's principles and how they apply and the actual outcomes that will come out of those principles in an individual's context will be adjusted by that individual. So you don't, what the reason I say this because it's you wind up having a variety of different diets or what would look like different diets using these principles. So your dietary intervention could be very different from mine, but we're kind of targeting the same general physiologic principles. So that's that's the frame I want to put here because it's not necessarily like a diet. It gets there's on social media and whatnot, it's it's easier to position it that way. And there's like the Ray Pete diet and the pyramid and people will see all that, that type of stuff. But if you actually start to dig a bit deeper into Ray's work, you start to see that he's playing around with different physiologic principles. And I think how this ties in very, uh, very importantly into the whole mindfulness and stress management perspective is that a lot of the principles are around or there's a big element of managing stress through these interventions through these principles overall so with that frame in mind a couple basic principles to start off with and i guess the, the first major one is what is this idea of stress and so i think that there's in in a lot of these different spheres it can be or spheres it can be a little bit obscure as to what stress is actually defined as and in the bioenergetic sphere we we actually kind of really break down and get into what is the stress and the def the definition comes to a mismatch between an energy requirement and then the actual available energy so when insert as an example and this could be psychological this could be on a physical level this could be on multiple different levels it basically the stress model is coming out of Dr. Hans Selye's uh, general adaptation syndrome. This is where Dr. Pete kind of pulled in these ideas. And essentially what you're seeing is there's a general model of stress and multiple factors can trigger that same pathway. And then it all comes down to about energy, very energy availability. And then what is the demand being imposed? So we have like, that's the first piece is we have this specific definition of stress. It's and it can encompass psychological stress, physical stress. It can encompass stress from a mental perspective, like doing very difficult or arduous mental tasks, whether it's working out excessively, whether it's in effects on sleep. So like all of these different areas can be encompassed to this general idea 
of energy demand and energy supply. So comes into like a, that type of logistics perspective around energy. So I guess that would be principle number one. And I don't, I don't know if you have any questions or you want to jump in so I can, let if me, I missed any area. Just, yeah. just so I understand, let me just try to repeat that a little bit in, yep. um, in the way my mind is trying to frame that. So we always have some demand. Yes. And stress can come in many different ways, which will in theory increase that demand. Yes. And if our supply and availability or ability to create energy or generate it, cultivate it, whatever, is not sufficient to meet that demand, which is going to be heightened with a stressful input of some sort, yep. whether it's emotional, mental, bacterial, uh, thinkery, exercise, whatever, yep. then there be then stress is essentially created and a shift the beginning of a shift is taking place which leads to some cascade that you'll i guess dive into yeah so that's exact that's you pretty much nailed it right on the on the head you have the body has a general energy level and you have all these imposed demands you're never going to stop having these energetic demands imposed right it's just that's that's life in and of right. itself but what you're seeing with stress is you have this circumstance where the energy demand is larger than what you're supplying at that point in time. So the body has systems to deal with this. This is the, those are the adaptive hormones or the stress hormones that are often talked about. That's your cortisol, your glucagon, your adrenaline, and there's this whole cascade. And what these, these hormones are doing is they're liberating resources, cortisol's breaking down glycogen, breaking down amino acids, turning that into glucose, adrenaline's breaking down fat stores and liberating that so that you have this energy substrate that you can use to meet this demand. And then, and, and essentially that's their purpose is to do that so that you, the, whatever the external demand is, you have, you now have this substrate, this energy source, fat, carbs, proteins that you can use to meet that specific demand. But the the problem comes in is that chronic upregulation of these things or a consistent upregulation of these things, or even upregulating these things because you aren't, you don't have a solid energy production on a regular basis starts to lead to issues down the road because there's a cost every time you start to rely on these backup systems. So that's, I don't know if that's, that's clear, but it, that's kind of the, like, I'd say the first principle to think of, particularly in an audience that's geared around mindfulness and addressing stress and calming the nervous system and things along those lines, this first principle of managing stress and understanding it from an energy supply and energy demand perspective, and that there's a cost when the energy demand is overriding the supply and you have to use these backup systems. Gotcha. So the goal from the dietary perspective is to basically have this optimal supply so that you, when you have these external demands imposed upon you, you're ready to deal with those demands. That is that stress resilience. And it's also in, at, from a longevity or health perspective, you're minimizing the negative impact of chronically having to run or upregulate these different hormonal processes that come at that cost. Gotcha. And I want to get more deeply into like the benefits and the, and the challenges I've had so far. And maybe you could help walk me through some of the challenges probably the biggest benefit that stands out so far is that stress management component. Like I do, I have a history of doing a lot of things to manage stress, whether it's breathing exercise, meditation, um, a warm bath, uh, like 
whatever the thing is. Yep. And what I've noticed is um, they and they work uh, usually mm-hmm. in an acute situation, but it's a time they all require time. Some of them require money. And um, and I noticed that I need a lot less of that. Like yep. my uh, I could the the dietary changes that are using this model are not only have I been able to pinpoint the ability to in an acute stress. Now, granted, I've really only done this with like physical and mental stress a little bit, um, not like deep embedded emotional trauma or whatever, but, you know, stressful day, I worked a bunch straight, I'm a little underfed or over, you know, just meeting the demands of my exercise routine. I've noticed that um, using these principles to my advantage has in an acute situation, decrease that stress to a noticeable degree where like, I literally just feel calmer. And also I think in general, the general stress, like the amount of times that I need to go to the well to use a breathing exercise, they've really reduced. Like it's been, and that's where it's been uh, really dramatic. I feel like I'm, I'm chipping away at the, the chronic stress equation and, and lowering the, that baseline of where I'm at, which makes the threshold to be in stress seem to be farther away. Like I could do a lot more before I've tipped the scale too far. And now I'm in a stressful environment um, or a situation. So those are two uh, principles, I guess. Um, Well, I guess the one, I guess that's two angles of one principle. Yeah. Um, What else would you say is meaningful to to touch on just to give like some basics like a foundation so i guess another parallel principle it goes hand in hand with this but the general idea and this is actually dr pete's hypothesis overall is that energy and structure are interdependent at every level so and this will apply to consciousness as well and we can kind of we kind of can kind of dig into this but essentially what dr pete is saying is that your structure your, your cells, your tissues, they, their functions and their components allow you to generate energy. And then the more energy that you generate, the more structure or complexity that the, the organism is able to maintain, right? So, and it, it works in an, in an upward spiral. So you have this circumstance where you're generating a lot of energy, you uh, metabolic energy, not just like there's a lot of things that go into that, but in a general sense, and we can specify it if you want going into like the flow of, uh, of glucose into the, the Krebs cycle and cell respiration and all that type of stuff. But in general sense, the, when the production of energy by your body, the ability to do that allows you to maintain these complex functions and structures. And as that energy increases, you can also to a degree increase that those functions and that complexity overall and improve the bodily structure. But at the same time, as, as energy starts to decrease, you start to degrade that structure. You start to degrade those functions. And let me give an example. So it's not so abstract. Um, and we can put this in, I guess, in the context of consciousness and, and, and stress and mindfulness and things along, things along those lines and kind of tie it into what you're experiencing. So the way I kind of just will describe this to clients is if you think of the body as a corporation, right? An organization, if 
you only the organization only has so many resources available at, at this one point in time, right? And so say the resources decrease that year and this is income, this is money. And the marketing department is using a crap ton of this, this resource. Well, that's going to take away resources from other departments in that organization or in a parallel to a body situation, other functions. So with this limited energy supply and then demands imposed in these other areas, other areas of that organization are going to suffer. So maybe accounting's not doing as well anymore. Maybe the HR department had to lay a few people off. And so on a parallel side in the body, if you're if you aren't producing this adequate amount of energy, if you're in this situation where you're under eating or you're not sleeping well, or you're exercising to a very heavy extent, or you're really drastically minimizing carbohydrates, well, for a while, you may be able to sustain that because there are backup systems involved in the body to manage that. But at a certain point, that that HR department and that accounting department, that could be your that could be your your mind state, that could be your mood, that could be your anxiety, that could be depression, that could be fertility, you can see loss of libido, you can see changes in, if you're a woman, you can see changes in your cycle, those things start to take a hit, those things start to down regulate, you start to lose some of these higher order functions. Whereas on the flip side, if say this corporation or the body has adequate resources available, well, they can expand these different departments. They can improve the different departments. Maybe the marketing starts to become just instead of just billboards, you start to market in social media, you start to market in Facebook ads, whatever the deal is, you start to increase all these different functions. Well, you start to see the same thing when you adjust these, these things with your own body. So what you wind up seeing is, oh, maybe I don't have anxiety anymore. Maybe I'm more social. Maybe I'm more extroverted. Maybe these external things that used to be stressors to me aren't stressors anymore. Maybe I can work X number of hours and I don't need to take a bath and use red light and do mindfulness techniques. And I don't have problems sleeping anymore. Maybe my cycle is a bit more regulated. I'm not having really bad PMS or things along those lines. So you start to see the adjustments in these functions. The other thing that, at least for me, that that is, is super important from like a cognitive perspective is if I'm well-fed every day, I'm eating enough on a regular basis, I have this adequate amount of energy my ability from a cognitive perspective to kind of step back from whatever my emotional situation is or whatever my train of thought is or my my conscious stream is, I can step back from that, have a meta-awareness of it and decide whether I want to integrate and adjust and involve myself into that or if I want to switch tracks. And so from a stress perspective, particularly or from a mindfulness perspective, that is way easier to do when I'm well-fed. If I'm in a circumstance where my blood sugar is low, I've under-eaten, I haven't slept very well, I'm not really going to get into that. Like It's much more difficult to really get into that function or to have that degree of awareness because I'm just going. I'm just trying to, to get past this period, trying to get by with what I'm going to do. So as with these circumstances, if you're, it's, you have this kind of two level area, right? You have this top down or this bottom up perspective where you're drastically trying to improve the physiology. And then you also have this, this top down perspective where you're, where you're using your actual higher level function and control your mind state to also adjust your physiology. Cause it does as well. Some of the major stressors that you'll see even in the research are like perceived stressors. So if you have an exam coming up, 
you're not in that exam, but the thought of that exam can trigger a stressor. But when you're in this state where your bottom is so solid, your foundation of health, your foundation of energy is so solid, you can kind of just, oh, I'll, I'll just, I have this exam. Okay, here's the plan. And okay, I'll just let, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready to go. And you can, you can, instead of getting stuck on that one piece of information and ruminating on it and developing anxiety about it, you can move to a circumstance where you can let it go. Okay, I have this exam. These are the things I need to do. Okay, I'll just get them done. And so you get to this state you have enough energy where these things become a bit more effortless and they're not as taxing as they once were. And so this is something for me, and I think it parallels your situation less is that when I was low carb, keto, paleo, all these types of things, I felt that I like had this, I was developing anxieties and I was having sleep issues and I was not very resilient to these different pieces. And then as I started to integrate more carbohydrate in my diet, to adjust my diet to some extent, and to improve some of this foundational function, you know, I went from a state as an example, when I graduated college after doing low carb, I basically had to spend a couple months just doing nothing because I was so exhausted from school. I had my family went through a divorce. I was, I was eating low carb. I was trying to overexercise, trying to be a power lifter, all this type of stuff. I crashed my system, had to just conk out to a situation where once I fixed that balance, I was able to, you know, go work 50, 60 hours in the hospital and then also work out and then also, you know, do the podcast stuff with Jay and work with clients. So my ability to handle these different stressors and these different the energy demands of my life drastically increased compared to the circumstance where I was minimizing my energy to a large extent and and basically any little stressor that would come in after I kind of crippled the system was just like a massive deal mm -hmm. and it could be even very small things would start to drastically impact me yeah I I went through that too small things like I remember I, I dropped a mug off the island and I had this massive stress response like of adrenaline and it's like that's not normal no um like you dropped a mug clean it up, move on. Mm -hmm. It's, it speaks that, you know, you talk about this spiral and it's fascinating. It's like, if you could create more energy, get more efficient with that, let's say remove interference of that, which we got into a little bit with Jay, you create more of this structure. And with that structure, you, you can harness more energy. So you have more resources and even something as like letting go, like letting go of a mental stress or an emotional thought that is a that requires a resource to be able to objectively see like i'm stressed over this thing i need to let this go there's a resource that's required that re that requires and demands energy to 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 do that task that we probably are not aware of and then it goes in the other direction if you're underenergied and you're losing structure you're losing that function and the system I guess has to prioritize like what, what, what marketing department or HR is it going to divvy it out to? Yep. Um, and I would assume that it, your, your system is going to prioritize the things that just keep you alive right now. So the things exactly. that it's going to be um, that are going to be missing out on are the things that might help you thrive more long-term or help you procreate down the road, things like that. It's what's going to keep you from dying today. And yep. we'll worry about the other stuff later. 
Um, and, and I guess that is, that's what's shown. And it also shows the, uh, is seen by what systems are prioritizing to use these carbohydrates as, as fuel, like the nervous system and the brain, these things that like are very fundamental to our existence and our ability to operate and function. Yep. Um, they, they, they get all those resources first for a reason. Yep. And those are also, those are also those higher order systems, right? So like when you look at different animals and whatnot, what the real thing that separates us from any degree of the other animals is those intelligent and executive functions. And so, and they're also the most energy intensive. So the brain, I think is some small, I forget the specific percent in terms of weight of the body, but it uses a drastic amount of the body's energy. So the two systems that you'll see that really use a ton of energy in the body are the gut and the brain. And so what I find with people coming out of low carb or keto or even ex extreme exercise or uh, low calorie diets to lose weight, things, things along those lines, some of the major symptoms that I see are alterations in gut function and then alterations in mood and executive function and thinking. And I think it's, it's not a surprise that you see that because they are so energy intensive because they are those some of those higher order functions and because when you have these energetic systems again you you're you're in a situation where you have to choose what's going to what you're going to prioritize and the body is going to prioritize sur survival at 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 the at the beginning so for even for a lot of women something that you'll see is alterations in cycle and fertility as being one of the most sensitive areas in terms of going into low carb diets or going into low calorie diets or over exercising or things along those lines. So yeah, it's, it's, it's the body does have a system of prioritization. It's going to prioritize survival now. And then those higher order functions, those down the road functions, those things are really going to suffer. And yeah. that's where you're going to see these symptoms. The other thing I just want to tack on here really quickly is that a lot of these adaptive hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, glucagon, side effects of those hormones are a lot of the symptoms that people experience on a regular basis. So I'll give you an example. If I was to give somebody a synthetic exogenous or a, a basically a non-body produced glucocorticoid or cortisol type drug, at certain levels, I can induce things like mania or anxiety or depression. So you can induce them through these things. And I, it's in certain studies, you're looking at people with PTSD, you're looking at circumstances where people have uh, uh, de resistant depression or refractory depression, it's not responding to treatment, they will find higher levels of cortisol or and lower levels of thyroid function and things along those lines or lower levels of testosterone in men. And you see these associations and it kind of goes hand in hand with this general hypothesis of things where these the upregulation of these hormones are coming at a cost. There are side effects to do them and they will lower these other more beneficial hormones that or functions that you'd want to optimize. And the hormones in and of themselves are messengers, messengers or signals from this from the cells or from this top-down regulation of the body saying, Hey, we have this energetic problem. We have this situation going on. Let's lower our thyroid function. Let's lower our sex steroids, our testosterone, progesterone, et cetera, et cetera. And then let's, we're going to have to increase our glucocorticoids, our cortisol, our adrenaline, and things along those lines. So you have this whole stress system geared around energy production. And at the same time, something to keep in mind is 
if you're in this chronic state of stress, your body and you're relying on these adaptive hormones, your body gets into a situation where these adaptive hormones are pulling from your tissues, adrenaline's liberating fat, cortisol's breaking down amino acids, glucagon's breaking down glycogen stores, and also the amino acids and turning that into glucose and providing this substrate. Well, that's coming from your own tissues. So, and that's that degrad slow degradation of structure. So the body's very intelligent and it, and it, it basically, when it does this, it'll also adaptively downregulate metabolism because if I'm shredding through all my stores, if I have all my firewood and I'm burning through my firewood, I'm not going to heat every single fireplace in every room of my house to keep all of it warm. I'm going to move everybody into that central room and heat one fireplace because I'm not going to make it through the winter with the firewood I have there if I keep this burn rate up. Mm. So it, there's this adaptive downregulation as well that's involved in those hormonal systems. Yeah, the, the hormones seem to play such a big role in kind of running the show. I mean, um, the impression I get is, and that's, I guess, one of the reasons why a lot of people that just try to cut calories to lose weight, even if it works, it seems to be very temporary because the body will adapt and say, we're starving, so we need to slow down. The thyroid modulates, it so turns down. The yep. adrenals say, don't worry, we're here, we'll help you out. We'll yep. get some energy. We'll just have to tear down the walls throw this uh, material in the fireplace, but those walls are you, yep. your, your bone, your tissues. Like it's not an ideal situation. Um, and maybe there's some benefits on very short for very short periods. Sometimes, I don't know, that'd probably be pretty hard to, to quantify, but um, even though that's a claim that is definitely out there in the health sphere, that there's value in that, but it does like, I, I don't think you'll see that elsewhere in the animal kingdom where you know that's something that would be valued like um yep. you know it takes work to keep the engine running you, you don't want to intentionally shut it down um it's interesting when you mentioned the higher or order function and it it reminds me of um when i was in like the the worst of it in my health journey shortly after being diagnosed with lyme disease and going on three weeks of uh, doxycycline, which really wrecked my gut. And then a uh, uh, supposedly like Lyme literate nutritionist saying I should go keto, um, which I think was poor advice. And then it led to all kinds of problems that really manifested uh, in the skin, mostly like just head to toe eczema, um, you know, really like couldn't can't couldn't leave the house very easily level of eczema really really uh suffering and during that time you know my kids were you know te young teenagers yep and talk about the higher order function like that time where you need to be there for them and then not just not being able to be there the way you want to be but then all the shit that comes with that as a parent, whether it's um, like the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that you're not even able to like do the things you want to do for them. And like what a talk about a cascade or spiral, you know, that um, and I think a lot of people feel that like I notice in my clients the way and, and since improving my health, like my ability to parent has dramatically improved. Yep. Whether it's having the resources to read a book to learn how to do it better, 
or to be introspective and, uh, you know, self-observant, being more mindful, whatever it is, all those things require energy and resources. And I notice in a lot of my clients over the years that there's struggles that at the time I really wouldn't have connected to their their food situation. Like I would be able to be able to spot, you know, this is garbage food. Like you can't have M&Ms for breakfast or mm -hmm. and think there won't be a cost to that. Um, but I, you know, then I'd hear them talk about their kid or something and the way that they're talking about it. And I'm hearing it like wondering, how does the kid interpret what they're saying? Like, because this person loves their child and wants what's best. But when you're not well resourced, you're not necessarily going to be as skilled at conveying your love for that child in a way that that child needs to hear it. So these yeah. things could show up in all aspects of our life that and a lot of those the areas that we just wouldn't really connect the dots. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so this I actually have a, a, an example that plays out in my relationship with my fiance. And I think that there's this is where like you want to have both that bottom up and that top down optimized. So from a mindfulness awareness perspective, like a meta awareness around your internal function, what's going on in your body and also having framing for that. I think you need to have that or it's very helpful to have that in conjunction with also understanding what's going on on a physiologic level. And let me give an example, because I know it can be a bit abstract. So with my fiance, the other day we were, I had to, I was on a podcast and we, Jay and I went for like so many hours because we always wind up going over. It's just like a, <laughs> it's how it always goes between us because we, our relationship and whatnot, but we went over for a long time and then we had to go and do some errands together, my fiance and I, and I didn't really get to eat very much. So I ate enough, I ate enough carbs and protein, but I was like kind of low on fat. So I started to feel that blood sugar dip. And we could talk about some of the specifics of organizing the diet and whatnot. And so I started to feel it. I wasn't really feeling good. And so I just told my fiance right away. I was like, look, my blood sugar is starting to drop now. We don't really have any food available. And I'm like, I'm in that I'm in that that spot. So if I'm a little like testy or I'm a little bit uh, frustrated about things, like just know it's because of that. And then also like when I know that, I know that it's not this person said this to me or the world is going to end or or whatever we're doing is like, it's just so stressful. It's like, no, right now, my context, my state is one where I've like my blood sugar started to, to dip a little bit. I haven't eaten enough today and I'm starting to feel it. And so when I have that top down awareness and I have the frame and understanding that this is a blood sugar problem and this is not because my fiance is a terrible person, <laughs> then it makes it much easier to let her know and then to interact with her in a meaningful way and also know that my actions and my thought processes are being dictated to some extent or influenced by my state, by my physiologic state. And it comes into, so the first point there is that it's a, if you have this framing and understanding that sometimes your frustration or your anger or whatnot could just be a blood sugar problem or it could just be because you didn't sleep last night. And it's not these external things that we all tend to ascribe our frustrations to. It's, we tend to see things as external, at least in my experience. You can correct me if I'm wrong or a different experience, but you, you have these problems that happen and you want to ascribe your state to these other your how you're feeling to these other things instead of recognizing that your internal state right now is picking on these things 
and making these things become more prevalent in that moment. And then if you adjust that state, it's like, oh, it's, it doesn't matter anymore. It wasn't really as much of a, of a problem that I thought. So there's there's that perspective. You understand its physiologic element and you have this awareness of yourself, this mindfulness of your state and how you're feeling and your thought processes, then you can very easily manage that. And then you can help to, that can help to improve your relationships with significant others, with kids. I don't have kids yet. So I'm just speaking from um, theory at this point, but we'll <laughs> see how it goes. Um, but you can, you can use, you can use those understandings to drive those relationships. And then a second piece that I, that really came out of this for me. And it was like, it was a huge realization because I, I spent a lot of time like with philosophy of the mind of thinking about that for a while. And like, the mind possibly being separate from the body. And what I came to with these experiences was my understanding was that my consciousness is a function or is generated by my physiology. And so with, with that perspective in mind, it became easy to understand that, oh, changes in my physiology are going to affect my consciousness. And so that's where I, like those couple points were really important for me in terms of understanding how I'm feeling, why I'm feeling different things, and then how I'm interacting with others. Yeah, that sounds great. And it helps you respond in a, in a more skillful way that aligns with, you know, what the things you value instead of just kind of react emotionally or whatever. And that's, pro and, and that's a two-way road. I mean, the placebo effect is evidence that it's a two-way road. Yep. You know, you, um, they have to control for it in studies for a reason, because it's real. It works. Yeah. The mind is very powerful. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You mentioned I was low on fat that day. I, that's one thing that I never find myself capable of. I feel like that's the macronutrient. Now I'm used to eating a fairly fatty diet and I'm trying to play as the carbs go up. I'm trying to reduce some of the fat. And that's one thing that is um, not doesn't come as easy for me with the things that I eat. Maybe we'll get into that a little later. I want to touch on one other thing first and then. Um, maybe get into the application, like what I'm going through. Okay. Um, so I mentioned when I was chatting with Jay that some of you will have questions. Um, you know, one of them might be, you know, what about diabetes? And in fact, I think there was a, a comment on um, the interview about that and talking about insulin resistance and, and claiming that maybe some of the benefits I got actually from adding sugar were because uh, yeah, I need to get that checked out. I'm probably insulin resistant. And, um, you know, I've been, I do blood work a couple of times a year and I've been very aware of what I mean for a long time. And so far, no evidence of, of that, but you guys propose like an insulin, insulin resistance I know is super important. And it seems like it's, playing a role in so many of the common pathologies that lead to our demise, really. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it exists on a spectrum along the way to those other problems, the other pathologies, whether it be diabetes or some neurological disorders. But it seems like it all starts with that stress. Like you have stress, which then leads to insulin resistance. So you guys teach a different way to look at insulin resistance than what's out there. And I'm guilty of used to thinking, well, you know, you just went to the well too much. Like, yeah, we have an infrastructure to use this sugar, but if you overdo it, it backfires. It's there to help you survive when food is 
variable and it's this beautiful elegant mechanism that will help you store fat when you don't know and then and and then i'm like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> because i mean with everything else it's a use it or lose it it's not like oh you overused your machine and now it's broken like that yeah. court like what how did i get that and then you when hearing you guys frame this it's um it, it just makes a lot more sense could you do I know this could be a huge topic, so maybe yeah. we could do the cliff note version. Okay. But can you talk? Because I know that's a common thing in people's mind. What about insulin resistance? Can you give a different perspective of how that emerges? Yeah. So I'll try my best to be concise here. There's like a <laughs> lot that goes into this, and it, it's a topic that I like to like dig through and talk about. Okay. And well, you can run with it however you want. Man. I'll I'll try my best to to keep it as concise as possible. Um. So a couple things. I think the first idea of insulin resistance came out of this perspective where there's like a receptor down regulation, right? So like if you have all this insulin, then the cells will just get used to it and they won't really respond anymore. And so you see that with some neurotransmitters in the brain. Like if you take a ton of drugs that agonize the dopamine receptor or release tons of dopamine, you can get this, this down regulation in those dopamine receptors. But I, this is not necessarily comparable to what goes on with insulin. So I, I think it's also, so that's the first piece is it that the idea that it's just, you have all this insulin and that carbs are signaling insulin and then your cells just become resistant to it because it just happened too much. Isn't really reality. Like that's not really bore out into the research very much. Um, and it's not really comparable to the other model where you, because I've seen it compared to like this dopamine downregulation idea. So I want to kind of dispel that piece first. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And I will get in, I'm going to try to get in a little bit to the mechanism. So the next piece is, is like, what is insulin actually doing for us? Like, why do we even have this hormone? What is it signaling for us? What's its importance? So there's first things first is inside your body. You're, you have all your tissues can take up different substrates, right? And by substrates, I mean things that they can use to produce energy or other, other cellular components. So carbs and fats are the main ones that are really used for energy. Protein really isn't used for energy. And if it is used for energy, it's converted into carbohydrates. So, and that, that process is a bit of a dirty process because it will produce different byproducts like ammonia that your body then has to detoxify. Now, our body is completely capable of doing that, but it also comes in an energetic demand to the liver, which is the main place that does that. So you're really not going to want to oxidize protein or run on protein to produce carbohydrates. It's not really ideal in the long run. Um, and there's some hormonal and metabolic consequences of doing that. So the next piece is the main two that you're left with are carbs or fat. And there's this there's this situation in, well, I guess before I get to that, your body is going to be oxidizing both carbs and fats at all times. And it's not that every cell is oxidizing both. It's that different populations of cells are oxidizing different substrate and different populations of cells specifically or are specifically or in general will oxidize one substrate more than the other. So as an example, the central nervous system largely runs on carbohydrate. Now, in circumstances where you don't have adequate carbohydrate available, it is so important that your nervous system gets this, that your body will break down other tissues, including muscle and skin and, and all types of different protein-heavy tissues to supply 
that glucose to your central nervous system. And then it will also will prioritize ketones for the central nervous system and severe deficiencies of carbohydrate. And that's because the, the central nervous system will not run on fats and ketones oxidize to some extent based on their structure, or they burned more like carbohydrate than they are like fats. So you have the central nervous system, which is very carbohydrate dependent. Um, now, the other tissues of the body are a little bit more flexible to some extent. You have like red blood cells need carbohydrates, and then some of the gonads need, and some of the glands need carbohydrate, and some of the organs, it's important for some of their function, but the body's a bit more flexible. So can it adjust up and down? But the central nervous system is really like, it needs carbohydrate. Like there's, you're not going to get away without it. Your body will produce it even if you take zero carbohydrate in on a regular basis. So in these circumstances, you're all the, the carbohydrates taking in the central nervous system and some of these tissues are taking carbohydrate, whether or not there's insulin present. So these tissues are not insulin dependent. On the flip side, you have tissues that actually require or having insulin present further drives that carbohydrate into the tissue. So these are considered the insulin dependent tissues. That's going to be your muscle tissue. That's going to be your fat tissue. And it's also to some extent going to be your liver, your liver. And what winds up happening is when you, your, these other tissues are all, uh, these other ones that are specifically dependent on carbohydrate are going to be oxidizing carbohydrate all the time. When you take in this exogenous carbohydrate, that insulin is a signal. It's an anabolic signal, not just for fat tissue, but for tissues in general to say, Hey boys, it's a party. We got all this who brought the beer, right? Like we got all this, we got all this substrate available. And so insulin is saying, Hey, insulin dependent tissues, you guys aren't necessarily as important as these other tissues that always need carbohydrate, but we have this X, this overflow not in the sense that you're eating too much, but we have enough to give you guys some too. So you upregulate insulin and then insulin gives it to these other tissues. Your liver glycogen can be refilled. Your muscle glycogen can be refilled. You start to put store some body fat or you can move into body fat. Now, something to keep in mind is carbo, the carbohydrate itself doesn't like, even like the fructose idea doesn't like rapidly produce fat like is perpetuated in some of the spheres. The ability to actually produce fat from the, uh, from fructose is actually quite low and it would take quite a while to build up a significant amount. So I, th this, that's a separate issue in terms of like obesity or diabetes. And I'm going to get to that. I promise. So insulin's context is it's a signal that you have carbohydrate and that you're in this anabolic state. You have a lot of energetic substrate on board in the form of carbohydrate. Now in, on the flip side with fats, the fats will usually for the, for these other tissues wind up being the default kind of substrate when carbohydrates not available. So it's kind and it's kind of like a signal of like, if you're only running majorly on fats, you only have exogenous fats that you don't really have a lot of this, a lot of substrate available. And the reason why is even if you were fasting, your body is going to run largely on fats. And those, a lot of tissues are going to shift over to fatty acid oxidation. And this is to spare that carbohydrate for the central nervous system. So fats are more of a signal that like, Hey, we don't have a lot of, you know, we're not having a party here. Like we need, we, we don't have a lot of this substrate, this carbohydrate substrate available. And so you're not getting that insulin signaling when you have a lot of fats. So that's, I, this is just context for the difference between carbs and fat. And then also like, why, why do we have this insulin signaling? So 
that's kind of like the, the foundation I want to lay there really quick. Now, next piece with the fats is anytime you're under stress, when you, if you're releasing cortisol, glucagon, adrenaline, you are break, you're releasing mostly fats and then you're driving further fat oxidation. So the stress state is characterized by increased fat oxidation. And these states like diabetes are actually characterized by increased fat oxidation, impaired glucose oxidation, and decreased energy availability at the cell. And a lot of these stress hormones can drive that diabetic profile because they, they upregulate that fatty acid oxidation. And so the key piece that I'm going to get to now is that the cell, an individual cell cannot oxidize carbs and fat at the same time. It has to oxidize one substrate. And the oxidation of fats will impair the actual oxidation or burning of carbohydrate. It'll stop the carbohydrate from coming into the cell. So when you're under stress or you're heavily oxidizing these fats, you won't oxidize carbohydrate effectively. And what winds up happening is you will, you can, you have two circumstances with this diabetic state because the, the idea of diabetes, is like, oh, you have high blood sugar. So it's a carbohydrate issue. And it's what I'm getting at too, is that this high blood sugar state is a function of this issue with oxidizing the glucose at the cell. And a lot of the cells are actually driving fat oxidation instead. The other thing that's going on is the liver is sensing this to some extent and is pushing out more and more carbohydrate. It has this glucagon is upregulated. Some of these stress hormones are upregulated and it's pushing out more and more carbohydrate even if you take carbohydrate in. So that's a dysfunction because usually if you were going to take carbohydrate in, the, the liver would stop putting out carbohydrate. That glucagon production would be lowered. So you're in this weird state with diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance or insulin, um, insulin insensitivity. You're in this state where you have this carbohydrate available, but your ability to use that carbohydrate is impaired. And the body is, gets the sense that that's going on. And it's still putting out that carbohydrate from the liver. And so you, it's not necessarily a state driven by carbohydrate coming in and then just making the, ins, like signaling insulin and insulin not responding. It's this state where with, even with the insulin signaling present with the carbohydrate, you have these high insulin levels in, in, in states of diabetes that the, it still can't drive that glucose into the cell because the cell is having dysfunction in terms of oxidizing the glucose. It, it, the whole insulin cascade gets affected, the ability to oxidize glucose all the way through the Krebs cycle gets affected, and the cells are really relying on fatty acid oxidation heavily in these states. And so you see that with the stress state, you see that with the diabetic state, you see that with starvation, you see that with fasting, that the fatty acid oxidation is all getting upregulated across these states. And then that's that fatty acid oxidation is what's driving this glucose intolerance because these cells can only oxidize that singular substrate at one time. And so that that's, I, I don't know. So is all that glucose, so glucose isn't being run through the system because the stress is sending fat through the system. The cell can't burn both at the same time or oxidize both at the same time. What, where is that glucose and is that already in the cell or is it just, is it all floating in the blood? Like can the cell store glucose inside, but not run it through the Krebs cycle? So there's a couple of things that can go on. There's a series of different pathways inside the cell where glucose can be convert, like the polyol pathway or these other pathways where glucose can get shunted. 
glucose can also move through glycolysis, which so, and I know it's a little biochemistry heavy, but glycolysis is a little separate from the cell respiration. So in glycolysis, you can move the glucose through glycolysis and you, and also like a lactic acid fermentation type of deal and use that glucose to produce lactate. And then you shuttle out the lactate and then the liver goes and converts that lactate back to glucose. And so you're basically, the problem with that though, is when you're running that system, you don't really produce that much ATP from that. You produce much less, I think it's like two or four ATP, which so an ATP being a, the energy Energy. molecule. So that's wasteful. Yes. It's a, it's a wasteful metabolism versus where, when a glucose molecule runs through the Krebs cycle, you get the ATP in the thirties. So it's, you're in this situation where you have like this wasteful utilization of the carbohydrate or the shunting of carbohydrate to these different pathways, instead of oxidizing it all the way through effectively. And then the cells are running or oxidizing those fatty acids. Um, The other thing is the glucose can get converted to fat and put into storage in the form of triglycerides. So the body basically has this, this like whole level of dysregulation around using that glucose and it's start just like, it's just kind of going in all these different places and being shunted into all these other places instead of really being effectively oxidized through the mitochondria, through the aerobic respiration and producing that ATP. Um, so are there the- other dangers with that? Like, is that what the Warburg effect is when that sugar is in the cell, but not getting into the uh, mitochondria? And then it we are, it goes through glycolysis. I forget if it's in the presence, if it's aerobic or anaerobic. It's aerobic, it's, it's aerobic glycolysis. And then you're creating, I, I guess, uh, um, more lactic acid than is ideal. And that's an environment that I guess cancer thrives in. Yeah. So you're in it. Cancer has a lot of weird metabolic defects and, and they're not, it's not like defects in the sense that things are just not running the right way. So they'll, they'll take glucose and they'll, they'll, the cancer cells will just run it through glycolysis and, and lactic lactate production, but it won't really, it won't really jet like run it through the actual Krebs cycle and then produce the ATP or it will run it through the Krebs cycle, but it won't oxidize appropriately through the electron transport chain. And then it will use fats instead. And so it's, in the cancer cell, you have like this series of deranged metabolic situations going on um, that where it, instead of a normal situation where the cell would oxidize glucose all the way through, produce ATP, or in another circumstance, it was fats, oxidize the fats through and produce the ATP. So there's a, and that can't, that, that upregulation in, in that glycolysis and lactate can also be a signal or a primordial signal to some extent for the cell to shift towards rapid division. So some of these metabolic defects going on, and I know now we're kind of like in a tangential area, but the metabolic defects going on in the cancer cell can actually be signals to lead to um, this rapid cell division. And then also if you have a lot of this damage going on in the cell with the, the different metabolic defects going on, that can lead to further mutations in the the dna the mitochondrial dna the cellular dna and alter what's going on in the cancer cell as well so like a lot of cancer is driven by these metabolic problems oh the diabetes or even obesity are can be driven by these metabolic or are driven by these metabolic problems directly it's funny in the in the fitness world there's some 
people out there that, uh, and you don't hear this message a lot, but they really push like avoiding glycolytic based fitness activities just to like that it's, um, you know, it's stressful. It's not good. It's not great for you, even though some fitness modalities live in that world. Uh, yeah. So uh, to stay with the, let me see if I figure this out. So you're not good at using, you can't use the sugar and the fat at the same time in the cell. Yes. You're in a stress state. So you're sending fat because the stress state has these hormones that get your liver or other structures to liberate fat to get more energy because you are stressed. Yeah. But because it's the fatty acids are flowing, you can't use the glucose. The glucose builds up, but your liver is trying to fix it by partitioning more glucose, which yep. so when you see the blood sugar go up, it's not necessarily the donut. It's your own body trying to fix the problem and have by getting more energy out there because you're not doing a good job at using the potential energy that's already floating around. So it's actually because I work with quite a few clients who have diabetes. And what you actually see is that their baseline blood sugars are generally higher. So though their fasting blood sugars could be like 150, 180. Mm -hmm. And then when they eat carbohydrate, their blood sugar will go up to say they're at 160, maybe they'll go up to 190, and then it will come back down to a normal level, or well, not to a normal level to their baseline to that 150 mark. So what's happening is they have this underlying increased glucose output. And that's the liver putting out glucose through the signals of glucagon and adrenaline and cortisol, but mainly glucagon is the main the main signal driving this. And so their baseline blood sugar is higher. And then when they eat, they're going up and coming down, but they're just going back down to that initial baseline. So the, there's two features of the diabetic or impaired glucose tolerance state. You have this situation where you have this elevated glucagon that's constantly putting out this blood sugar and it's not stopping or responding to the insulin that you're getting with, with the carbohydrate consumption. So, and then the, on the second side is you have this impaired ability at the cellular level to, to effectively utilize or take up that glucose. And so in these circumstances, what you, you if in, in some of the research, if you actually block glucagon, you can improve of many of the features of diabetes in and of itself. So hmm. just take, and they do this in rats, they basically knock out uh, glucagon receptors. It, it's a lot of genetic, like uh, special rats that they create to knock out these different things. But if you knock out the, the glucagon receptors, you can basically, and they do it through like, and they uh, give the rats a virus that will silence the glucagon receptors in their cells. Um, and then essentially what happens is their features of diabetes are drastically downregulated. Like their blood sugars improve, their insulin sensitivity improves, et cetera. So there's, it's character, the diabetic state is characterized by these two things and the high blood sugar and, and things that people are seeing in these states isn't just because you're, you're eating that carbohydrate and it's just like, it's driving the, the blood sugar up is you have this underlying baseline production going on. And then you have an issue with that carbohydrate disposal. So the question in terms of fixing it is how do you adjust what's going on at the cell? How do you kind of bring that excess fatty acid oxidation at the cells down? How do you improve that ATP production going on at the cells? 
how do you minimize that glucagon production at the liver so that your body can now get into a state where you're actually taking the carbohydrate and you're oxidizing it and the signals are improving so that when you get this insulin signal, that glucagon starts to come down. So it's more than just this idea that carbs are driving insulin and then insulin is driving this problem. It's more of a problem of there's an issue going on at the cells in terms of oxidation of substrate, particularly carbohydrate. And then there's an issue going on at the liver in terms of excess glucagon upregulation and pushing out of carbohydrate with that's not responding to insulin. So it's like this whole kind of derangement. And it's not as simple as just eating carbohydrate causes that problem. There's many things that are involved with that. And that's where if you talk with some of Jay about some of the metabolic inhibitors to the system, that's where you can kind of see some of those things going on. Um, I don't know if you talked about like gut situations like endotoxin or the polyunsaturated fats. We did briefly. Yeah, we did briefly, but I wouldn't mind getting more into that. So the, the glucagon is something really to focus on then because it's what is triggering the glucagon that raises the base level. And that could be any one of those stresses, endogenous stresses, life stresses, or anything interfering with our ability to oxidize the glucose. Yeah. And it's, there's, so this is like a, one of the arguments that Jay and I, we, we have a podcast episode in response to one of the paleo advocates, uh, Rob Wolf. And what oh, yeah. we, he, we were talking about, Rob Wolf was saying that in, in like a keto or, or low carb diet, excuse me, you see this constant blood sugar and that constant blood sugar is a function of just running on these adaptive hormones all the time because you're not eating carbohydrate, bringing your blood sugar up, and then insulin is helping you, helping you to dispose or of that carbohydrate into the different tissues, and then the different tissues are using it. You're just running glucagon, your liver's putting out that carbohydrate, and then your cells are like it's matched with your cells uptake. But again, you're still resting on those adaptive hormones. You're still resting on that glucagon to maintain that blood sugar. So you're you stressed have... at base level, basically. Exactly. That was kind of our argument because um, essentially what you see over time with low-carb keto carnivore diets is that people's fasting blood sugars will tend to start to creep up. And so you'll see people in, with their fasting blood sugars maybe in the low 100s, maybe 110 when they're on keto and carnivore. And like, how is this happening if I'm not eating any carbohydrate? And it's because that gluc- that base level of glucagon and glucose output from the liver or response to the glucagon is being adjusted and adaptively upregulated. And then when they come to bioenergetic, if they implement things, it can be a little tricky with the implementation when you're starting to switch over. But when they start to implement things like, oh, my fasting blood sugar dropped, but now I'm eating like 200 grams of carbs a day. What's going on? And it's that insulin signaling that you now have where you eat the carbohydrate comes up, insulin signals starts to bring that glucagon back down. And then obviously when you start to increase carbohydrate in your diet, you will start to increase your oxidation of carbohydrate. As long as you, you know, you don't have that actual issue at the cell. Now, something I do want to talk about is that ketosis, low carb, all of these different states, particularly ketosis are characterized by insulin resistance. So when you're it's a physiologic insulin resistance. And by physiologic, I mean, it's not like a, you're not diabetic. You don't have this pathology or this disease process, but you're in a state where you're actually, because you're oxidizing so much fats and the cells can only run on the, or use one substrate at a time that the, you're not very good at using glucose in those states. And there is a period of time 
if you are transitioning from low carb to increasing carbs in your diet, where you have to, your metabolic machinery and the hormonal systems have to adjust to that. So it can like, cause I have a lot of people who are like, I'm on carnivore, I'm on keto. I did paleo, I did low carb. And I, you know, I felt better. I lost some weight. I, but now my weight is stalling and my sleep is kind of bad and I'm getting some anxiety or my cycle kind of got messed up or my testosterone is lower or my cholesterol. And for some people's like in the four hundreds, like, what do I do? And then they's like, I found Ray Pete. I found your guys podcast. And I started like eating carbs and man, the first time I did it, like I, I just like, I felt better. Like I felt less stressed, but I was a little dizzy. I was kind of like a little mm-hmm. bit off. And it, there is an adjustment period to like from ox- focusing mainly on oxidizing fat to starting to increase your carb oxidation. And they, in re- the research studies, you can kind of see this where they, there's something called the respiratory quotient. And basically they're looking at the ratio to CO2 uh, production and oxygen consumption. And what there's, you can see that as you increase carbohydrate intake or you increase fat intake, you will adjust that respiratory quotient. And that's basically indicating whether you're oxidizing more carbs or more fats. And the reason that is, is because when you oxidize carbs, you produce more CO2 in relation to oxygen. And when you oxidize fats, you'll consume more oxygen and produce less CO2. So you can use those things as proxy markers to determine what's going on metabolically. And so you'll see people, they go to a mostly carbohydrate diet, that quotient will adjust and reflect that as long as there's not significant metabolic dysfunction. And then when you see people on a high fat diet, you'll see that they'll, that will also adjust as well. And there's a transition period where you have to, your body is adjusting to these different things because you are really hammering home different pathways. If you're running mostly on fat, you're going to drive adrenaline. You're going to drive glucagon. If you're running on carbohydrate, you're going to start to, you're going to start to have that insulin signaling. And so you have to keep that in mind if you are transitioning between these different diets. Gotcha. Yeah. And let's get into that. Now you mentioned it's tricky. And actually before you do, you mentioned the carbon dioxide and that's how they measure whether you're oxidizing that quotient uh, that represents how much carbon dioxide you're producing. Um, For the listeners, when we had Jay on um, recently, we, we double clicked that a little bit and just to recognize the value of that. And a lot of the, breathwork practices that exist are literally to increase carbon dioxide. And I know that I've gotten some benefits, I think, from that increased carbon dioxide production. Um, most notably, noticeably is like um, this like air hunger sensation I would get periodically has seems to, to just be gone now. Yeah. Um, and that sensation <clears throat> is not a pleasant sensation and I could fix it, but it would be like a 20 or 30 minute breath work session. Whereas now it's just not there. Yeah. So speaking of tricky, I've been a couple months in probably um, between two and three months of significantly increasing carbohydrate. Um, Now I've increased, so I was relative for a while. I was super low carb because I didn't even know that, you could eat 150 grams of carbs and still be considered low carb. So I was in no man's land for like a good while where you're not in ketosis, maybe periodically dipping a little bit, but not really in ketosis, but not even having enough carbs to like run your nervous system for a day, let alone everything else. So, you know, this 75 to 100 grams a day, there's no man's land. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> which is stressful. Now yep. I know that is stressful. So I've been increasing um, fruits, dried fruit, honey, maple syrup. I was already uh, doing the raw milk thing. So the, the 75 to 100 grams of carbs I was having was generally in the form of a little bit of fruit, a little bit of honey, um, a medium amount of raw dairy. And that was it. Yeah. You know, I probably pieced together an occasional uh, starch with dinner occasionally. But um, and that didn't work. So I've been increasing the fruit, adding dry fruit, which I've really learned to enjoy. Um, things that even dry, like that's something I would have vilified and like got on someone's case for a year ago. If And a little bit more starch, like mostly in the form of white rice and a little bit of, I've been f making my own like slow fermented sourdough bread. We had uh, Bill Schindler on the podcast who uh, teaches kind of um, old school traditions of preparing the food in a, whatnot, a modern yeah. way, which is great, fantastic resource. And so I've been baking like one loaf of bread a week <laughs> that the family shares. And I would say, unless I eat too much of it, I seem to be handing that really well, even though for years, like bread was obviously problematic for me. I, I got negative responses from it. So that's where I'm at. So, um, and I'm eating cane sugar. And honestly, <laughs> I think I have this, uh, you know, I get the big bag of organic cane sugar. I think that's the thing that serves me the best. Okay. And I'm wondering because like, it's just instant energy. It's rocket fuel. I don't have to deal with my gut having to deal with it. I don't have to worry about whether my colon can handle the fiber. And, um, and, it, and I get some funny looks in the house, you know, because <laughs> I will literally put a spoon into a bowl of sugar and put it in my mouth. <laughs> and I'm putting two heaping tablespoons of that sugar in my coffee in the morning, yep. along with two tablespoons of um, Amish country raw cream, like cream so thick you got to scoop it. It doesn't pour. It's glorious. Not the cheapest stuff, but um, so it's going really well. Um, my energy, great. Air hunger, gone. General stress level, lower. And also ability to manage more acute stress, whether it be through exercise or just evening anxiety, thinking about the world kind of stress. I could I could shut that down in a few minutes with uh, a teaspoon or tablespoon of sugar. Um, so all in all, good. My workouts, man, I have so much. I'm 45. I'm going to be 46 this year. I think, yeah, 46. And um, I'm just killing it in the gym. Like I no. have gears that I did not have before. Like I would, I would go. My big workouts are usually um, fairly long, and I would go like an hour and a half in the last. 20 minutes i'd be on like fumes now mm -hmm. i'm going two hours and i'm just like i you have to go home less leave the gym go home <laughs> and i'm like i could definitely yeah. do more i feel like my muscles aren't getting depleted so i'll have um i'll bring i had the local health board food store has this dried pineapple that's like coated in sugar <laughs> um organic pineapple literally dipped in sugar and i'll i'll bring one of these discs you know these um with me and i'll just nibble on it 
through my workout, yep. which I always try to used to like work out fasted. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, no, no, feed the system, you know, <laughs> the more, the better. And it's, and my workouts are so productive. Now the downfall, I wanted to get some insight. Maybe I'm going too fast. I have a tough time modulating myself. Maybe when something, when I, you know, I'm been known to like, well, this works. So let's do more. Yeah. This supplement seemed to do something. What do for, what does a quadruple dose do? Um, which, you know, blessing and a curse. Sometimes that goes really well. So some things, some bumps along the road. I wanted to get your insights. Okay. Um, I wrote these down. So I, I definitely gained a little weight. Yep. I mean, I, and just for some context, in, um, I used to be like just shy 240 pounds, all fat. Started exercising leveled off. I was doing, I was racing triathlons in like the mid two thousands at like 185, 190, mm-hmm. which is a, a fat triathlete basically at yeah. 511. Um, I was very dangerous over short distances <laughs> and then, uh, lugging all that weight up a big hill is a problem. So then, um, slowly as I went low carb, I like, I got lighter. And when I got sick and I was doing all these elimination diets, trying to heal my gut and get better and playing with tinkering with different fasting strategies, I got really light. I got down to 153. So I went from like 237. And then in spring of 18, I was 153. Okay. Um, And then I leveled off. So 19, 20, 21. I was probably between 175 and 182-ish. And I thought that was a reasonable weight for me, but okay. I was stressed. Um, and I thought that was good. So I, I just assumed any heavier would be probably not good because that'd be excess weight. Excess is, is bad, right? So then I introduced this. Immediately, I gained what's obviously water weight because I know you can't gain 10 pounds of fat and protein in a week. And Jay uh, educated us that, you know, when you're storing carbohydrates, you store three times their weight in water. Yep. Which what I find is a good thing because I'm by another benefit, way more hydrated. I don't have to tinker with all the, you mentioned Rob Wolf. He makes a great Mm -hmm. product element. And um, I'll still use it if I'm like getting in the sauna, if I'm doing Mm -hmm. like a significant sweat. But like, I used to use a lot of that stuff and all the electrolyte powders, I don't really need anymore. I feel like I'm holding on to water and that's good. Um, But I think there might be a little extra weight. So I don't know if I'm throwing too much fuel on the system and my machinery is not there yet and I can't catch up. So maybe I'm going too fast. Uh, It almost feels like sometimes there's a little bit of a bloat, but it almost feels like um, not like a gas gaseous bloat, but more of like, as if I drank a bunch of water that's just sitting in my belly, but I didn't drink a bunch of water. Okay. So I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Um, not a real problem, but I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm trying not to like interpret these things yet. Just be like, Oh, look at this. I'm experiencing this, not freaking out. Uh, and then a little bit of heartburn. And this is the one that's a little uncomfortable. So I don't really, that's not something I've had to deal with. I remember back before I got into like wellness, you know, 15 plus years ago, if I had like a big dish of pasta or pizza, I might occasionally get heartburn, 
but I really haven't had any heartburn in like 15 years. Yep. And I, oh yeah. And I am drinking juices. I have a feeling that some of the juices might be contributing to the heartburn. Okay. I don't know if like, maybe that's good, but not for me or not yet. So those are like the challenges I'm trying to navigate and um, would love, you know, some expert advice of, um, you know, how do I, how do I hold space for these, not beat myself up and navigate forward with skill? Okay. So just to, just to clarify, so we have heartburn, weight gain, um, a little bit of bloating. And then it, what, did I miss anything? Um, no. And the weight gain, I'm like 205 now for perspective. So 205, I feel like I've leveled off at 205. Okay. Which a year ago I would have said, that's got to be terrible, but it feels good. Okay. 205 feels good. And what were, before you started adding all the carbs and where were you at again? Um, what was your I, starting weight? Probably around 180 to 180, 182, low 180s. Okay. So 180. So I put on 20 to 25 pounds in a year of first slowly ramping up carbs. Okay. And then more recently after hearing you guys really ramping up. Okay. Um, I'm just going to, I have, I took a little list here so I can make sure I okay. stay on track and I can answer your questions appropriately. Okay. Um, so I guess first things first, as far as the, as far as let's, let's tackle weight gain, right? Cause that's going to be the big one that everybody is, everybody wants to know about. Am I going to, if I, if I add a glass of eight ounces of orange juice to my, to my eggs and kale breakfast, am I going to just balloon? Right. So that's the, that would be, I guess, the first question for people. So when you first start to transition over, if you are, the first piece is that when you start to increase carbs, as you mentioned, you will, or as Jay discussed, you will bring water weight on board because the glycogen and carbohydrate are stored with that water. So the three to one ratio is indeed correct. Yeah. Jay and I have covered this on, on videos together. So we're coming from the same place. Um, so you're going to hold some water. If you're gaining, depending on your size and how much muscle you're holding and all that type of stuff you're working out, et cetera, I would say it'd probably be for like a larger guy, probably a fluctuation of 10 pounds would be about normal. And then when you, I would say after that, you're probably starting to gain weight. Now in your circumstance, you're lifting. So there's a good chance that you're probably um, putting on some muscle, I but have. also, sure. yeah, but also putting on some body fat simultaneously. And so there's that's the first piece is that you can gain water weight if you're larger you, like a larger guy maybe up to 10 pounds i would say is kind of okay and it will come on fast so don't be it's like the same thing with keto if you go keto most people are like oh i lost 10 pounds in the first two weeks it's like that's not fat right <laughs> that's because you've depleted your carbohydrate stores and now you've lost some water and maybe you, like you lost a little bit of the the water weight fluff that people tend to hold and that's like the same deal that you see at the end of the day where you're like, oh, I'm holding a little more. And then when you wake up in the morning, you're super lean. It's the kind of that kind of deal. So in those in that circumstance, it's kind of normal. Now, what I want to touch on with the bioenergetic pieces, there's a couple things. So the first thing is that if you've been running, if you lost a lot of body weight, like pretty quickly, or you've been on the lower body weight side for a period of time, and you've been running probably either carbohydrate deficit or a caloric deficit, to some extent, and you've also been training and you've been digging into the, those stress hormones, 
you can get into a state where you, when you start to eat again, you start to regain body weight. There's actually a, this is like in the research type of thing. It, there's a term it's one of them is post-starvation obesity. Um, and then there's like other terms that they talk about inside the research in terms of like this, like overshooting a fat gain when re reclaiming body mass. And so what they're looking at here is they're not looking at like people who are keto and doing six day a week bodybuilding workouts. Some of the things they're looking at is like the Minnesota starvation experiment, or they're looking at army ranger training where the army, they have these young guys probably in their twenties, maybe their teens. They put them through these rigorous, like low calorie, uh, plus this like psychological stress and or physical stress training. And so they wound up losing body mass in that period of time. And when they come back from that, they wind up being in a circumstance where they've gained at least 10 pounds of fat directly. And it's not even like eating necessarily in a massive caloric excess it, but it's, they're just, they come back to eating normal again. And what happens is when you dig into these pathways and you dig into these hormones, you downregulate thyroid function, you downregulate androgenic signaling to some extent, and you upregulate, uh, you downregulate, uh, downregulate leptin signaling, a whole host of these hormones get downregulated. And then the cortisol, glucocorticoids, uh, adrenaline, the, which is part of the catecholamines, glucagon, all these things kind of get increased. And then in this circumstance, there's also things that goes on with the cells where the cells adjust their energy output. So now this adaptive thermogenesis, this ability to produce and to produce heat from your food kind of gets down regulated as well. So you come back in this bit of a lowered metabolic state. And what winds up happening is as your, your, your body mass, your actual lean tissue is starting to come back to normal, your rate of fat mass is actually higher. So you wind up actually, you wind up putting on some fat mass. If you're coming from these states where you're low carb, maybe a little bit on the lower calorie side, maybe eating once or twice a day, still exercising, maybe running marathons, maybe you lost over a hundred pounds of body weight. So you, you basically will find yourself primed in this circumstance to put on a bit of body fat. Um, and this is known like in the literature for even athletes like gymnasts and mm. Is that protective, you think? Is that like your body saying, don't do that to me again? I'm going to store extra energy long in long-term facilities, adipose tissue? I or? think it is. I think it it's probably a, a protective or an adaptive survival mechanism so that when you do go through subsequent stressors like that, you're basically sending a signal to your body like, hey, the environment is X, Y, and Z. It's not that great. And so into the, I think in the future, your body puts it like puts on a little bit of extra storage in case you have to go through that circumstance again, that like extreme famine cycle to some extent. Um, and so, yeah, and th th those training period that I mentioned with the, the Rangers wasn't like, you know, it wasn't years. It was like a couple weeks type of thing. So even in the short term, when you say like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get super lean for my wedding. I'm going to go on this ridiculous low calorie diet and I'm going to do cardio every morning and I'm going to, my carbs are going to be 20 and all this type of stuff. When you do rebound from that, there is a chance that you can put on some more body fat from that, especially if you've done it over a couple of weeks. So those fasting and feeding cycles can be a bit damaging to the hormones and then also can set you up to gain weight. And this is known in the research. It's like a known phenomena. Does so, that level out? Am I, do I need to just be more patient? So from this context, what I usually do when I you do like a controlled reverse diet type of situation. So if I have a client who comes to me, they 
found the bioenergetic stuff. They're scared to introduce carbs, but they're not doing well on low carb. And they've tried some and they feel a little bit better, but they don't want to gain weight. I will slowly adjust and taper their carbs up appropriately to their tolerance so that this is a consistent um, phase. I'll The next thing we talked about is the types of carbs and foods that I'm having them put on board. I'll adjust as well and use specific ones um, that'll have, that can help to mitigate some of the stress hormones, mitigate some of the fat gain. And then, so, so go slow, which seems sensible, which is not what I did. Well, the other problem when you come out of these famine, let's call it the famine stage, just to keep it easy. When you come out of this like famine stage is that you will get a degree of hyperphagia or you will just be really hungry. So as a personal example for both Jay and I, when we were in college, so we're, we're young, we're in our twenties, we came out of uh, low carb cyclical keto fasting on top of like this crazy power building, which was like a mix of bodybuilding and powerlifting and gymnastic training. And we were eating enough calories to some extent, maybe on some, a couple days a week, we were on the lower end for what we were actually doing, but we were like voracious. I remember you're saying you put took two tablespoons of sugar out of a bowl. I would just sit there on the couch with a bag of granulated <laughs> sugar and just, just eat that. I could, I was eating everything in sight. Whole foods used to sell these banana chips, which was like bananas fried in coconut oil with a little bit of sugar on them. I would eat the whole bag in one sitting. Like I it was uncontrollable hunger. And we also experienced that while we were low carb and I was kind of the bad one because it'd be like Saturday and Sunday. And we just did, uh, we did like a fasting two days of that week and we worked out five days. And then we also did keto two days. And on our, some of our heavier workout days, we refed carbs, but only up to 200 grams. So like things like that. And so on the weekend we would sit down and we'd be like, we'd be in the house. We're like, Oh, we're going to go out tonight. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And so Jay would just, we had this like five pound bag of blueberries in the refrigerator and we sat on the couch and we just ate the whole bag. We oh just literally ate the five pound bag of blueberries and we didn't go out because we stained our hands and faces. purple. <laughs> but that's a, uh, we would do things like that. And because we're, it's that you have that response to this, like to what you have to this famine stage. So gotcha. it's kind of normal for people to come off it and be like, Oh, I'm just going to eat everything now. And it's also, there's a psychology to it where it's like, in the low carb and whatnot, there's like, there's a lot of restricting, restricting around foods, right? Because you start with low carb and paleo, and then you go lower carb, and then you go keto, and then you go carnivore. And so you have, I have people that I work with are coming like, yeah, I've been eating three pounds of steak a day for the past year. And that's it. (laughs) And then it's like, now it's like, oh, I can have orange juice, I can have all these different types of foods. And so there's that psychology element of well, where it's like, the, the gates have been opened. Yeah. And you just, and you're feeling better and your, your appetite is like a lot higher. And then you also have all this freedom now that you didn't have before. So those things play into that situation as well, but generally a slow, a slow increase in calories and a slow increase in carbohydrate and choosing your carbohydrate sources appropriately is important. Now the next piece and I'll, I want to come back to that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you just say, like, when you say slow, what is slow? Like adding a certain percentage every week? Yep. So, so there's a couple targets to look at. And it also depends on the individual. Like a lot of this is where that context comes in that's important. So I'll give you an example. Say we were working together. Say 
you're my client and, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to, you know, you're coming out of this low carb. What are we going to do? You want to increase carbs. You're feeling better, but you're worried about the weight gain. First things first, we're going to sit down. We're going to see what is based on your activity level, based on your size, what, what is it like a reasonable caloric intake? And it's not that calories in calories out, or, you know, the be all to end all. I just want to get a sense based on the research of what would be considered a normal food volume. And that's all the calories really tell us, right? So we're going to see what's this normal food volume. Then from there, we'll say in your circumstances, 3000 calories a day, you know, you're, you're a bigger guy, you have a decent amount of muscle mass, you work out regularly. So we're going to see where are you meeting? Where are you hitting currently? Most people that come out of the, these diets, I'll have guys who are about the same size and they're like, oh yeah, I'm eating 2,400 calories a day. And so they're already technically in a deficit. They're already in like a 600 calorie deficit. If we're using 3000 as like, this is where they technically should mm -hmm. be. So the first things first is I will want to get them to 3000. So that's point number one. And even just increasing calories, people will feel better overall even if I don't drastically increase your carbohydrate, but just eating enough to support what you're doing is important from the get-go. So that's foundational step number one. Number two is we're going to look at what are you doing? We're going to look at protein amounts. Are you eating, in, how much protein do we want you to eat based on the research? So we're going to, we're going to solidify that and we're going to keep that standard over time. We want to make sure you're eating enough protein to sustain your lean mass, to build more tissue, more muscle tissue, to and not really use that protein for energy. Because as I discussed it, there's problems with doing that. So we'll, we'll have that piece kind of standard. And then what we'll do is the first level of carbohydrate that, or the target that we'll initially shoot for is two times as much of that protein in the form of carbohydrate. So say for you, your protein requirements about 50 grams or 150 grams, excuse me, we'll probably shoot for 300. Now I'm not going to take you from, you know, 50 grams of carbohydrate to 300 grams of carbohydrate tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next two weeks, or anything along those lines, what I would slowly do first, I'm going to get you, I want to get you to 150 grams. That's the baseline minimum amount that you're going to require for like the central nervous system function on a regular basis. And then it could even be higher depending on your size and other factors that you have going on. So that's where Jay and I usually kind of agree on like that 200 gram mark is probably the minimum that we really want people to be at. But again, we're not going to bring you there right away if you've been on that 50 grams, right? That's right. that's a mass, that's a four times increase in one go. So it's it's a slow taper up. So I'll probably, if you're sitting at the 50, I'll probably try to bring you to 100, 150 at first and see how you tolerate that. If it's too much, you know, we'll taper back a little bit. And then from there, we'll increase. And the way I do this is... I will adjust the amounts at each meal. So say you're at 150 grams of carbs per day I'll have, and you're doing three meals a day. We'll do 50 grams per meal. And then say we want to get to that 300 gram level. I'll just bring you up by 10 grams per meal or 25 grams per meal or something like that. And I'll adjust the rate based on how you're responding. Some people respond really well and it goes up fast and it's like, whoa, I feel so much better. What's some typical though? Like if somebody's going, in my case, for instance, let's say I was getting 100 yeah. And I want to get to 300. Yeah. How long should I give myself to go from 100 to 300 to do it in an intelligent way? Which in an, in, I, if, I, if I'm if it's up to me, I'm guaranteed to, guaranteed to do it in a dumb way. Okay. It's so it's hard to give you like an exact time, but just I would maybe try to increase by 
I don't know, 20 grams, 25 grams per meal per week per or meal. something like that. Okay. So every, yeah. okay. Gotcha. So you That's could do like, so say you're at 50 grams per meal this week, the next week after that, maybe you go to 75 grams per meal. And I would say the caveat here, and this is, I guess, why it's the bioenergetic point of view can be a bit difficult is because there's caveat and nuance and these different elements and people are like, just what is the amount that I need I do? to do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stop beating around the bush. But um, if you're not feeling very well, like, or you're getting a little dizzy or things like that, give it a couple days, allow yourself to kind of push through, see if that adjusts. And if you're still not feeling that great, then I would scale back a little bit. Um because it, it does take some, especially if you, the longer you've been doing that and you've been driving those pathways, the, the harder it can be sometimes for different people. And if you have any type of metabolic dysfunction, like a lot of the clients that I work with are, are type two diabetic and they just, they're coming off keto, which didn't fix their type two diabetes. It just kind of didn't have them have blood glucose spike super high anymore. So but they still are like type two diabetic, like and some markers improve, but then they were staying there and sometimes it was getting worse. So they were like, okay, this is not working anymore. So I want to adjust. So in those circumstances, I really go, it's a slow process. And I use that 150, 200 grams. And then depending on what their targets are from there and their activity levels will adjust from there. Now there's a caveat or not a caveat, but something very important to consider when you're doing this. And this is a problem I see pretty consistently. When people want to increase carbohydrates in their diet and they're coming off lower carb and they're used to eating volumes of fat on a regular basis, you can't still keep your fat massively high and then try to like, you don't want to do 60 grams of fat in a meal plus hundred grams of carbs. Cause that is a recipe to start putting on tons of weight because even from like a sheer food volume, like a caloric volume, it's very, it's going to be very high. So you're going to have to start to bring that fat content down. I now, think that's where I, I might yeah. speak to my problem, actually, because I, I will take a piece of cheese out and put honey on it. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, I'll put uh, what would most people would say an unreasonable amount of butter on a piece of sourdough toast. Yeah. So you're going to that's something that will start to cause the weight gain is if you're still running 200 grams of fat a day. And then you just threw 300 grams of carbs on top. There's, while, while calories and there's like modulation or there's like, we could talk about like the calories in calories out idea and how it applies to obesity a bit if you want, cause it applies here to some extent. It's not that calories in calories out are like the be all to end all, but there is a, at a certain point, like if you're, if you're going to eat like 4,000 calories or 3,500 calories a day and you're really only using about 2,500, your body's not just going to automatically, oh, I'm going to burn an extra thousand. Right, right. It, there, it, it's physiologic. It's normal to store body fat. This, I don't think this is the underlying cause of obesity. And because your body, if you overfeed, you start to increase metabolism to some extent. And then there's also at a certain point, you're going to be too full or, or bloated or you're, you're, you'll get satiety mechanisms. Someone can just be like, oh, I need to chill out. So those things will kick in, but you can put on, uh, an over an excess amount of body fat, not to be again, not to an obesity scale, but to like, I'm holding a little more than I want type of scale. If you just maintain the super high intake perpetually and you, and you're not really adjusting these things to some extent. So that's, that's so an let, important piece. Let me ask your opinion of this strategy then, because I, I eat a, a whole food diet. I mean, I'm eating pastured meats, raw dairies, the honey, maple syrup and fruit. Yep. 
and a little bit of sourdough bread. A um, little bit of fish and chicken. I, I minimize those. It's mostly, um, re- you know, pastured red meat from regenerative agricultural farms. Yep. I am used to eating fairly fatty cuts of meat. I think I love them. And um, other than like the butter I'm putting on things or the little bit of fat I'm using to cook something, I, I guess I probably, the easiest way to lower the fat would be just to get leaner meats, leaner cuts, because um, I don't know where else I could reduce it. Like most of the fat I'm getting is in the meat that I'm eating. So I feel like that that is probably the easiest lever to tinker with. But I've been so accustomed to getting the fatty cuts mm-hmm. coming from a higher fat lifestyle. So there's a couple of things with that. If you and so let's talk about fat specifically now, because we, we we did the carbs a little bit um, with fat. Usually and it depends on the person, depends on muscle mass, depends on training, all that type of stuff. The range for what people, what will work for people can be anywhere as low as 20% of calories all the way up to 40% from what I've seen. If you go, if you go too low fat, you will start to develop other problems. So your blood sugar can be kind of all over the place because you're eating the carbs, the fat's not helping you stabilize it. And then Mm. boom, your, your sugar drops and you're hungry again. So you can have that. You can start to get digestive issues if your fat goes too low because the fat stimulates the bile acid wow. release, it stimulates, it also stimulates digestive enzyme release. So that's really important. Um, and then the fat is also a base for that hormonal function, those steroid hormones. If you lower fat too much, you can see that, you, for example, in some of the studies, testosterone can start to drop in men. Or so, And I've, what I've seen in clients is not necessarily, like I've seen testosterone levels drop, but I've also seen like the function change. So I've seen women have more dysregulation with their cycle if they're too low fat. I've seen libido be poor. I've seen guys' mental function be poor. They're kind of brain foggy or their drive in the gym is poor. They're just not doing that good in their workouts anymore. So the other thing to keep in mind is your body, your muscles specifically are oxidizing that fat at rest. So if you are a larger guy, if you're holding a decent amount of muscle, you may want to have a bit more fat on board to to like feel good in general. Like I know, I don't know how to put together a diet where I'm not closer to the 40 than the 20. Yeah. So on the, on the flip side, um, too much fat, you can start to gain weight if you're doing that plus really high carbs. So that's the issue. And then on the other, the other perspective with that too much fat is it can start to cause digestive issues. It can start to cause increased fullness because you can get bile dumping from it. The fat will drastically delay gastric emptying. So you could be super full, feel like the food is sitting there forever. If your fat's really high in the meal, um, and that then, takes longer to go through. So what happens is fat stimulates digestion. And a lot of people who go low fat will find that they don't have that bile acid output. Those bile acids will stimulate that gut motility to some extent. And so if you're really low fat, you can find, oh, maybe I'm constipated or my digestion is not as good. But if you're too high fat, the fat slows that drip of food out of your stomach. And so if what a lot of people find in keto, carnivore, low carb, is if they're eating a 16 ounce ribeye with a bunch of butter on it, and they're at like, you know, 50, 60, 70 grams of fat, plus however much 50, 60, 70 grams of protein, you're not going to be hungry for the next five, six, seven hours, because the fat is going to delay that gastric emptying, you're going to feel really full. 
And then you have these increased satiety mechanisms from the protein. So what you want to wind up doing is finding a nice, like a comfortable amount of fat. It could be 30 grams, could be 20 something grams in a meal for your, for a guy, your size, I'd probably put you closer to 30 grams per meal. And what I would say with those fatty cuts per meat with the fatty cuts of meat is to have your fatty cut of meat, see how much fat you're, if you're getting 30 grams of fat with your, with your meat, and a lot of the fatty cuts of meat, say it's a, a nice ribeye or something. I usually don't have people eat massive boluses of protein in one sitting. So it's when you, when I adjust, start to adjust the diet, it's not that 16 ounce ribeye for a meal. It's like four or five ounces of ribeye. And yeah, my protein has gone down, even yeah. though I've gained muscle. Yeah. So when you carbohydrates spare protein. Yeah. So when you, cause as I was discussing, if you don't have enough carbs on board, that protein starts to get converted to carbs through gluconeogenesis. But when you have enough carbs on board, you don't need to drive that gluconeogenesis. You can spare your protein. In the research at this point, what you're basically seeing is that about 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight is really the amount of protein that's optimal for people who are lifting, who are trying to maintain muscle mass, build muscle mass if they're in a deficit. So I would really stick there. A lot of people on low carb or keto go super high and they're having like, you know, one pound of meat in one sitting. And so I would adjust the meat intake to maybe four or five ounces in one sitting. If you're going to go fish, you probably go higher because it's not as dense in protein. That'll also bring your fat down a bit because four ounces of steak, if you're having four ounces, you're probably going to get on a fatty cut, maybe 30, 35 grams of fat there. So that'll help to adjust that. And then I just wouldn't then throw butter on top of that and then eat cheese with the steak and dip <laughs> your cheese in honey as well. <laughs> okay. We're finding the issue. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> all right. So that's interesting. Um, I will keep that in mind and try to make those adjustments. I think maybe that's what I probably ramped up the carbs a little too fast and I didn't adjust on the fat side accordingly so i might be more total calories than i need and, and most of that might be with the because i didn't adjust the fat yep um i don't think i need to worry about not getting enough and um because it just seems to be so easy to get enough um okay yep. what about the uh like the heartburn and the blow, like, is it common? Cause I assume you talk about juice a lot because you guys promote getting uh, carbohydrates in a way that's easy to digest, like easy yep. to get where your body doesn't have to do a lot of work to get it. And juice seems to have value there. Um, uh, plus it has polyphenols, some positive things and structured water, maybe all kinds of stuff in it. Yep. But um, is that common when people are adding juice that the acid itself creates a you know a burning sensation so heartburn and some digestive issues are common when you first start and it's not it's more of a function again of like the implementation and this is where a lot of the implementation like the principles and like the targets and stuff are easy to do like this is how much protein i have but it's like how do you organize your meals? How are you organizing them throughout your day? What's going on with your blood sugar? What's going on with your ability to use carbs, things like that. And then there's also other mechanisms that you start to dive into. So, and as in this ties into the idea that fat will delay gastric emptying and protein will increase satiety. So in your meal, 
say you're going to eat your six, your, I don't know, maybe eight ounce steak, right? So you're eating an eight ounce steak. You're having some cheese with that. You're putting some honey on the cheese and you're like, oh man, you know, let me, let me finish this meal off with a nice glass of juice, 16 ounces. So now imagine you have this eight ounce steak in your belly with the cheese and the honey, and you have like a pretty hefty amount of fat in there. So you're going to really delay that gastric emptying. And then now I'm also going to pour another 16 ounces of juice on top of that. So that when you first, when you, when you do stuff like that, you'll find that that creates a lot of pressure in the stomach. And then that pressure in the stomach can push back. And that's where you start to get some of the acidity. And a lot of times the fix is not, I don't necessarily think that the juice directly is causing it, but I think it's, if you're combining a large volume of juice on top of a decent amount of fat and protein, and it's coming after you're eating those things and you're delaying that gastric emptying, and now you're really filling up your stomach that can push back on that, that lower esophageal sphincter. And that's where you can get some of that reflux and that heartburn. The other thing to keep in mind is that your stomach acid is very acidic. And so if I took a bunch of fluid and I diluted that acid, it's not going to work as well. So now if you're putting in a big steak and then you're dumping in a bunch of fluids on top of that, say it's milk, say it's milk and juice. Now you have a very basic fluid milk juice is a bit more acidic, but it's not down at the same pH as the stomach acid. You're mm -hmm. diluting that. And now you're increasing that demand on the digestive system in one go. So the, the workaround for this that I, if, especially from a digestive perspective that I, if my clients are dealing with that. So what I would have you do is I would have you drink the juice and have your dried fruit first. So drink those first. This is at your appetizer, right? This is your, your aperitif. You're getting ready to, to have that, that, uh, that steak and, and whatever other components of the meal you're going to have. Wait about 10 to 15 minutes and then eat your steak and your fat after. So, and the reason I, I say this is the juice digests really rapidly. So what you'll find is if you load up on juice, so say you did like 20 ounces. Oh, I'm not drinking. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm using okay. this as an example for you here. So okay. like, say you did like 20 ounces of juice in one sitting, you'll probably notice that you're going to pee within the next 20 or 30 minutes. And that's indicating that you've already assimilated that juice to some extent. And the fluid is moved into your vascular system. And then your kidneys are excreting that, that volume. That fast. Okay. Yeah. So the, the juice digestion can be very rapid. So if you're having it beforehand and it'll, you can digest the juice, you can kind of get it through your system a bit. And then you have that just 10 to 15 minutes later, you can have that protein and that protein part of your meal. That's your main course. And then you should be, you should be good to go. You'll probably find that you have less digestive symptoms. Um, okay. Go ahead. There's another piece I want to add, but I want, I'm sure if you have any questions, I don't know. That's good. I mean, it. that makes sense. I, I do think that some of the experience I've had have been later in the day where I've been eating throughout the day and I have some juice and then it seems to be problematic where I don't notice it. I think early, yeah. um, I'm only having maybe four ounces at a time, two to three times a day of the juice. Okay. Organic juice expensive. That's one of the. It I mean, is. It's expensive. So it I'm is. like, let's not get carried away with this. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if it's because I just got too much food in there, and it's funny because I do make a point to try to not drink that much during meals in the past, and everything's changed for me lately. I'm like, oh, let me just try this. Do this. <laughs> do this. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe you have to be smarter about it. Um, yep. 
Okay, I will play with that idea and uh, see how that works. I appreciate that. The last thing, um, the bloat, is that possibly just uh, my machinery is just not up and running yet for this amount? So there's this ties in again also with the juice piece to some extent. And there's two other points I want to add to that, but that will also tie in with this. Um, when you're constructing a meal, say you're just first pieces if you're just having steak you don't have any other vegetable fiber or cooked vegetables or fruits or whatever with that there are problems with proteins going and then like heme iron from the steak and bile acids going into the colon when they when they make their way into the colon that's where your microbiome is really situated the microbiome the bacteria there will produce a bit of toxic compounds from those components there's a whole list of them um, indole, scatol, ammonia, p cresol, hydrogen sulfide, etc. So usually what I recommend as well is to add some type of cooked vegetable or some type of plant fiber with your protein source because it serves to dilute the the protein that goes into the colon and minimize some of those toxic compounds. And then the polyphenolic compounds, those plant antioxidants, help to modulate the microbiome in a beneficial way. And on just a little side note on those, a lot of people don't, don't really know, but the polyphenols aren't really absorbed. Those plant antioxidants aren't heavily absorbed by us. Most of them actually make their way to the colon and then the microbiome uh, metabolizes them into different compounds and then will absorb some of those compounds. So those are, you can kind of think of as like selective ecosystem modulators or mm. selective antimicrobials. They, they, select more for beneficial bacteria or microbes in the gut and they kind of crowd out the negative ones so having some cooked carrots some cooked squash some cooked peppers i like peas personally i know it's not super bioenergetic or carnivore or anything but i have that so i'll have a meal for me this is an example for you or for the audience could be 12 ounces of juice some dried fruit or fresh fruit and then what I'll do is I'll wait, you know, that 10 to 15 minutes. And then I will eat like a plate that has some, whether it's fish or seafood, like shrimp or scallops or red meat, something along those lines. And then I have some cooked vegetables on the side and then I'll, whatever fat source or other spices and things I'm going to use to make it taste better. It's so like, if I make use ground meat, I'll have some tomato sauce in there. So it's still like, it can fit within that paleo paleo-esque idea but, but you say it could be from the protein from the iron and the protein hitting the large intestine so that's one piece so from say, what I, I thought that protein was pretty much managed in the small intestine and when i ate high protein and had very little fiber like i didn't have it yeah so well there's another piece i'll bring on but okay the the protein about 95 percent is absorbed in the small intestine so you're, you're getting about 95% of that absorbed, but there is going to be that 5% that will make it to the colon. And so when you start to add these other foods on board, say you're adding fruits, say you're adding dairy, say you're adding cooked vegetables, whatever the deal is, number one, you will have a shift in your microbiome. And then number two, you will also alter to some extent how much protein is making it into the colon versus not. If you're just doing mo like a mostly meat and protein diet and you minor berries here and there or something like that, then you're probably going to be better at absorbing that meat than you, and you have a different microbiome profile than if you just, 
if you had all these other things on board. So that can adjust it as well. Now, the next piece to keep in mind with that is timing between meals. So in the bioenergetic sphere, when people start to come onto this, they wind up eating all day long you know, have some orange juice here. I'll have a little cheese there. I'll have a little honey on here. There's a system in your intestine called the migrating motor complex. And this system, it's essentially like a software program that tells your intestine to contract in a rhythmic fashion and move food and debris and bacteria and everything out, down and out, moves it all the way through. This system takes roughly three hours for that, for one cycle to like move everything through. The kicker here is that every time you eat, you restart that cycle. So if you're grazing all day long, you can constantly be restarting that cycle and your body's like in the process of digesting and moving these, the food along and then you're restarting and you're restarting. And so a lot of people wind up getting bloated because they're doing some, again, some milk here, a steak here, some juice here, and they're not actually having like a situating themselves to have like an actual meal waiting a three hour or four hour window, having a meal, waiting a three hour, four hour window and having that meal. So that also can create some bloating um, under those circumstances. And that's because you're, you're just overburdening that system. It's not, it's working on this part of that uh, migratory motor complex. And then you're adding something in. So it's like diverting resources maybe, or well, it's just restarting that cycle. So you're just re it, the site, the it's triggered by the hormones that trigger that cycle are released when you start to eat again. So when you start, when you're just grazing all day long, you're constantly like you can, I guess you can think of it in terms of overburdening the system to some extent, but you are like, you're slowly, like you're restarting all the cycles again with the digestive track. Um, the other thing, how does that it- cause a sense of bloat though like why wouldn't that just be a steady stream of low level activity or whatever if the meals aren't because if you have some components in your food that you're that are not digesting or they're not being moved along or being assimilated appropriately because the system is starting somewhere else then you can start to get like a maybe a buildup of microbes in the intestine so i've had some people have SIBO after doing this which is Mm -hmm. that small intestine bacterial overgrowth and Basically, the microbes can get a hold of it, and then they start breaking down some of those food components, and that can uh, cause some bloating based on the metabolics products they're pro- producing. Maybe it's gases, right. maybe it's different metabolites like lactate, things along those lines. And so you start to notice, man, I'm, you know, I don't feel terrible, but I'm kind of like I'm a little uncomfortably full, or a little I feel kind of bloated or full. And that's I think it's a function. In my experience, has been largely a function of grazing. It's yeah. been a I think you hit the nail on the head, man. I mean, when I was low carb, like I never had, like I could, I could easily at any moment, not eat like blood, no cravings. And now you're right. Like I'm so enjoying all this abundance that I am like every time I walk by the kitchen, Oh, let me (laughs) have some milk with maple syrup in it chug it go on to my next exit like i i'm overdoing it the yeah. loaf of bread is out take a sl- like i don't even need it it's more <laughs> of like i'm just like this is just fun um so i think that's the place for me to try first i don't want to like micromanage i think the order of my meal so much 
yep. where it's like, well, let me time and get my fruit first and protein. I, could, I, could, I believe you that it works. For some people I'm trying to find, well, how do I make this fit my, uh, my life yeah. really? So, and I am definitely grazing and I didn't used to do that. So that, that is definitely, I would think low hanging fruit for me to, uh, to tinker with. I will do that. I have, um, abused your schedule here, man. I, I did not expect to go this long. I really appreciate all that you've provided you as NJ, a wealth of information. Um, and I highly recommend, I mean, if folks out there want to take a deeper dive on a one-on-one -on -one level, the value you can get out of working with somebody one-on-one -on -one experience with this is, I mean, the upside is so high. If you wind up, you know, getting everything dialed in for you, I feel like I'm really close to there and I have like a few kinks to work out. So now I have some new strategies to, to integrate and see how they, they go. So I'm excited to do that. Um, we went on a lot, went over a lot. Again, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the one with Jay, um, I would follow up with that so that this will make more sense. Um, Mike, is there anything else that you would like to add before I let you get on <laughs> to your day? No, I just, I appreciate your time. I, I appreciate the invitation. It was a great conversation. And then just, I would just want to plug if anybody wants to find me, you can find me on the podcast with Jay at the energy balance podcast. I have my own YouTube channel. It goes, it gets a little nerdy and goes into these different topics and very specific details with the research studies, but that's Mike Fave. That's the name of the YouTube channel. And then I also have a, uh, a guide available for people that you can pick up on my website that goes through how to calculate your macros, how to calculate your calories, what foods to implement, how to adjust them. And some of these strategies that Les and I talked about today, you can pick that up on my website. So that, that's the only other things I'd want to add for people here. Great. And I, and I recommend everybody check out the Energy Balance podcast. It is a, um, a very well-organized uh, piece of educational content that's um, very digestible. And you could just kind of methodically go in order and get a, a ton of, of education. Um, you have a deep understanding of this stuff. I really appreciate you giving away this gift that you have. We will link in the show notes and description um, all the ways to reach out to Mike. Um, Mike, thank you once again. Really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the, the personal help. Um, I'm obviously doing this for selfish reasons to some extent to learn and just bringing the audience along for the ride. For the listeners out there, I hope you got some value out of this. And I encourage you to check out Jay and Mike's work. I hope everybody has a great day out there. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to thank everybody again for tuning into this episode. I really enjoyed my talk with Mike. I feel like I got some valuable tips that I look forward to implementing and seeing how that goes. I do encourage you to check out the Energy Balance podcast. Just start at episode one and get a, um, a very powerful education that could help shape the way you look at um, the energy that you're creating and the energy that you need in the best way to make those things match. Um, if you have any questions, then please send them my way and I'll do my best to answer. And if I can't, I'll try to get Mike or Jay to, to answer for you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you have a great day.